Well, open your Bibles with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and we're going to continue our study on the topic of the resurrection, which is what all of chapter 15 is really about. And it's been several weeks since we have actually looked at this topic. We've been busy with Christmas and other things. And so as a very brief reminder of where we've come, we've read through chapter 15 that the Corinthians did not believe in a bodily resurrection. They claimed to believe in the resurrection of Christ, but they did not believe that they themselves would one day be raised. And so what Paul has set out to do is to help them understand the futility of this belief, the inaccuracy of this belief, and show the reasons why. And so as we focused on this in particular, we looked at the certainty of the resurrection and what it is that Paul says, and remembering that the resurrection is a central truth to Christianity. If you take the resurrection of Christ out of the equation, you have nothing. If you take our future bodily resurrection out of the gospel message, then we have nothing. And so Paul points out to these believers the consequences of believing that there is no bodily resurrection. He says if you don't believe in a future bodily resurrection, then Christ was not raised. And if Christ was not raised, then the preaching of the gospel is meaningless. Our faith is meaningless. The apostles are all willing, false witnesses of this truth of the resurrection. If there is no resurrection, we're still in our sin. We will perish at death. And we of all people are to be pitied most because we've given our lives something that is not true, that cannot and will not change our eternal destiny. Paul then pivots on this teaching and says, but Christ has been raised. He is in fact the first fruits. And the teaching behind the first fruit, or the truth of the first fruit, is very simply this, is that in the Israel history, there was a first fruit of the harvest that was gathered. It was brought back to the altar as an offering to the Lord. And that first fruit was a promise of the fuller harvest that was to come. And so in this sense, Jesus' resurrection is the first fruit of a greater harvest that is to come. And that greater harvest is the resurrection of the believer at their death. In this resurrection that He provides, He provides life. Verses 21 and 22 of chapter 15 say, For since by a man, a single man, Adam, came death... By a man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. So every human being who was born into this world is born spiritually deaf through the ancestry of David and all believers who are grafted into life with Christ through faith of the finished work on the cross will be made alive again. So because of Adam's sin, all men are condemned. And because of Christ's obedience, all believers will be made alive. He overcomes death, and that's really the primary teaching that is a part of the resurrection theology, is is that in Jesus' resurrection, He overcomes death for the believer. This is His main point. Just as Christ overcame death through His resurrection, He overcomes death for the redeemed through their own future bodily resurrection. That's the way we overcome death through our faith in Christ is in our eventual bodily resurrection. And through Christ's resurrection, He subdues all things. The subjection of all things includes all powers and all rulers and all the enemies of God. And the chief enemy of God is death. 
This is what Jesus has come to overcome, the great enemy of God, which is death. Through His death, through His burial, and through His resurrection, He has overcome sin and He has overcome death. This has resulted in the subjection of all things to Jesus, which will be fully realized on that last day when the bodily bodily resurrection takes place and all believers are raised to new life in Christ. So as we continue in our ongoing outline, we're looking at number Number three this morning, and that is affirmations of bodily resurrection. Now, I'll tell you on the front end, and you can thank me later, I cut about seven or eight pages of material out of this, which equates to about 15 to 20 minutes, because of, of how complicated and rich and deep and significant these few verses are. We're just looking at verses 29 through 34, and as we begin to read through this, you probably will say, well, I can see how that's complicated, but I don't really understand how to understand all of that. That's the challenge in teaching, is figuring out what to include and what to remove, because I think it's all important, but you don't have unlimited time. So let's read together chapter 15, verses 29 through 34, and then we'll look at what I believe God says to us through this. Otherwise, what will those do who are not baptized for the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why then are they baptized for them? That should pique a lot of questions in your mind right there. Verse 30, why are we also in danger every hour? I affirm, brethren, by the boasting, by the boasting in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die daily. If from human motives I fought with wild beasts at Ephesus, what does it profit me? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. Become sober-minded as you you ought and stop sinning, for some have no knowledge of God. I speak this to your shame. Well, there's a lot in here, and I know that some of these verses sound very, very familiar, but when we read these familiar verses in the context of the greater passage of Scripture, they mean something a little bit different than what we thought. So as we look at the certainty of the resurrection and the affirmations of bodily resurrection, the first thing that Paul is going to say here, letter A, one of the affirmations of a bodily resurrection is your practice. Now it says in verse 29, Otherwise, what will those do who are baptized for the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why then are they baptized for them? So many commentators say that verse 29 is the most difficult verse to understand in the entirety of the book of 1 Corinthians. This verse has at least 40 different interpretations. The majority of scholars think that Paul is is referring to some form of vicarious baptism, but there is no unanimous agreement as to what form this baptism may have taken. The differences in interpretation are related to the baptism being actual physical baptism or a metaphorical spiritual baptism where they... Were, were they baptized literally for the dead, or were they baptized metaphorically and spiritually for the dead? Were they Christians who died before baptism? Are they Christians who professed faith but couldn't physically be baptized? Were they people who were close to making a decision for Christ but 
died before they were able to make it? Or were they lost people that Christians hoped that being baptized for them would bring them to salvation? John MacArthur says this. He says this is one of the most difficult, not just in the book of Corinthians, but in all of Scripture. I quote, The careful and honest interpreter may survey the several dozen interpretations offered and still not be dogmatic about what it means. We can only guess since history has locked it into obscurity. And this is one of the challenges, is that Paul is writing into the specific cultural practice of that church and there are no records or minutes of what they were doing or why they were doing it. Just this verse that indicates that they are baptizing people vicariously and it's presumably to help dead Christians. What they were doing and why they were doing is lost in obscurity, but clearly something is happening and Paul is bringing this practice up to show them that they in fact do believe in a future bodily resurrection. Otherwise, you would not be baptizing people for the dead. Now, we're going to break this down a little bit more as we go through this. Now, Paul does not condemn this practice of their baptizing some for the dead. And questions come, why didn't Paul do that? And there's about two pages of notes that would need to be communicated to explain that. But what we do know is this. Paul doesn't believe that vicarious baptism brings salvation nor does personal baptism bring salvation. What that means is that when I was baptized at the age of 21 as a new believer, that baptism affected nobody but me. And that baptism didn't really affect me in terms of my salvation. It was only my outward expression of what took place internally through my faith in Christ. I was dead and made alive. I am dying to my sin and being raised to life in Christ. That's what baptism is. It is symbolic. But Paul does not believe for an instant that vicarious baptism brings salvation to anyone else and personal baptism does not bring salvation to an individual. Paul also wrote in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, For by grace you are saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God and not by not as a result of work, so that no one may boast. Clearly, salvation is independent from baptism. Paul also wrote Romans 3.28, For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Now, when Paul references the works of the law here, he's clearly referencing the works found in Judaism that at the time of his life were necessary for an individual to be saved. So what Paul is saying here is that an individual is saved not by what they do or don't do, but by their faith in the risen Christ. Again, Paul would write to Titus in chapter 3, verses 5 through 7, He saved us not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to His mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that, being justified by His grace, we would be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Again, salvation is separate from baptism. 
Baptism is not necessary to be saved. It is an act of obedience. It is a symbolic gesture of what has taken place in us spiritually. Again, as we look to the Bible and what it says about salvation, the Apostle John would say in John 1.12, But as many as received Him, to them He gave the right to become the children of God, even to those who believe in His name. You can't be saved and benefit anybody else. You can't be baptized and think that that brings you salvation. So, there is this distinction about what Paul is referencing in 29 and what some think it means. Some think that it is necessary to be baptized for salvation. There are some who practice baptism for the dead today based upon this single verse. And if you take any single verse out of its context, and out of the scriptural teaching about that subject, you can make a doctrine out of any verse. Really, you can do that. So it's clear that a personal decision must be made for salvation, and therefore, vicarious, bap- bap- excuse me, vicarious baptism does not accomplish anything for anyone. We must remember that Paul's point in this whole chapter is about their unbelief in a bodily resurrection, and he is using their own practice to show them the silliness of that belief. Paul asks two important questions based upon their unbelief in a bodily resurrection and their current practice. And these two questions are found here in verse 29. The first part of that, number one, says, What will those do who are baptized for the dead? And a way of stating that that I think fits more in line with what Paul means would be, What do they hope to achieve by baptizing for the dead? The second question is found in the second part of verse 29. If the dead are not raised at all, why then are they baptized for them? So these are significant questions that Paul is asking here because it addresses the central issue in the entirety of this chapter, their unbelief in a bodily resurrection. To paraphrase, what Paul's probable meaning is would go something like this. You say there is no bodily resurrection, so why are you practicing a baptism in an effort to help dead people if in fact there is no resurrection from the dead? In other words, what you are doing is not consistent with what you say you believe. It doesn't make sense to do something in preparation for something that cannot happen. It just doesn't make any sense at all. And this is Paul's point. You affirm a future bodily resurrection by your practice of baptizing people for the dead, and yet you don't believe there is a resurrection for the dead. This doesn't make any sense. Your own practice affirms the reality of a bodily resurrection. Otherwise, you wouldn't be doing these things. Now, Paul moves from what they are doing to what he and the other apostles are doing as further affirmation of a bodily resurrection. And that is found in letter B sacrificial service. Verse 30 begins the treatment of this sacrificial service where Paul says, why are we also in danger every hour? Now if you read this verse by itself, it really doesn't make a lot of sense. Reading this verse and understanding what Paul is trying to reinforce as a central truth of the gospel message, the resurrection of Christ and our own future bodily resurrection, Paul is saying if there was no bodily resurrection, 
suffering for the gospel would make no sense at all, and we would be suffering for the sake of suffering. What do you call that? It's called masochism, right? Or masochistic behavior. You're suffering for the sake of suffering because you don't believe in a future bodily resurrection. Paul's saying it would make no sense for us to suffer if there were no bodily resurrection. Paul would be crazy to put his life in constant jeopardy for the sake of others if neither he nor they have any hope of a future resurrection. But even more, this sentence indicates the absolute central and crucial place that Christ's resurrection played in his own life. If you remember Paul, the zealous Jew who was bent on stamping out Christianity and would kill all Christians and take others back to prison in an effort to stamp out Christianity. His life was radically changed by the resurrected Lord who appeared to him in a vision. Paul's life was absolutely and completely changed by the truth of the resurrection. And if it was not changed in that way, why would he be willing to put his life in jeopardy every single day for the purpose of the gospel? Now, one must remember that to deny the resurrection of the dead means to deny the resurrection of Christ, which meant for Paul the denial of Christianity altogether, and that's why he outlined very clearly the consequences of not believing in a bodily resurrection. Therefore, everything Christians do as Christians, and most especially the labors of an apostle, are an absurdity if there is no resurrection. Paul goes on to say in verse 31, I affirm, brethren, by the boasting in you which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die daily. Paul's boasting is in reference to the existence of the Christian church that he was used by the Lord to establish in one of his missionary journeys recorded in Acts chapter 18, and their existence is his boast in the Lord that they are even saved. Paul says that this birthing of the church in Corinth in you came at a great personal sacrifice. He died daily. He dies daily to his own desires, to his own needs, in order to serve the purposes of the Lord for the benefit of others because of his confidence in a future bodily resurrection. Do you think Paul would die daily if he wasn't confident in a future bodily resurrection? Would you and I be worth it? Paul's figurative daily dying is worth it because he knows he will be raised to new life when he dies just like Jesus was raised when he died. We read this in Hebrews 12.2 Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before Him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus willingly endured the cross because it was the Father's plan. It benefited others by bringing life to them and because He knew He would be raised to new life. He taught this all through His public ministry. Destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up again. That's exactly what He was talking about. So this truth should become a huge motivation for us to serve sacrificially because we are confident in the new life to come 
when all things are made new. Now Paul moves from the figurative daily dying to the literal suffering service that he endured as an apostle. He says in the first part of verse 32, If from human motives I fought with wild beasts at Ephesus, what does it profit me? Paul's labor for the gospel often involved physical danger. Now there's debate as to whether or not these wild beasts reference in Ephesus are literal or figurative, but what we do know is that everywhere that Paul went to share the gospel, he was met with great hostility. He would say in 2 Corinthians 1.8, For we do not want you to be unaware, brethren, of our affliction which came to us in Asia, that we were burdened excessively beyond our, beyond our strength, so that we despaired even of life. What is Paul saying? Paul saying is my service for the gospel has, inc- has included incredible sacrifice to the point that I thought I was going to die. In the same letter, 2 Corinthians, Paul would provide the detailed list of what it is he's endured as an apostle, as a, one, as a servant willing to suffer for the gospel because of his confidence in a future bodily resurrection. He says this in 2 Corinthians 11, verses 24 through 28. Five times I received from the Jews 39 lashes. Five times. I would venture to say that probably none of us would continue after one set of 39 lashes given by the Jews. This flogging was so brutal that to go beyond 39 risked death of the individual. Now we're told by historians that in Jesus' scourging they went beyond that because they didn't care. Five times I received from the Jews 39 lashes. He says in verse 25, Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I have spent in the deep. Do you want to continue? Do you want to go on? Do you want to continue to serve the Lord? Do you want to continue to sacrifice for the gospel message? Paul did. Because he was confident in the resurrection. Verse 26, I have been on frequent journeys in dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my countrymen, dangers from the Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers on the sea, dangers among false brethren. Everywhere Paul went, every step he took, it was dangerous. It was a sacrifice to serve the Lord And to share the gospel message. But Paul says, hey, it's worth it. I die daily. And I would never do so if I was not confident of a future bodily resurrection. He continues, verse 27. I have been in labor and hardship through many sleepless nights and hunger and thirst, often without food and cold and exposure. Have you ever called in sick because of a sleepless night? Have you ever really been hungry and thirsty and without food? Have you ever been in the cold and exposed to the point where you thought you were going to suffer hypothermia? Would you want to continue to suffer? And if all of that wasn't bad enough, Paul says in verse 28, apart from such external things, there is a daily pressure on me of concern for all the churches. Paul died daily 
He affirms the truth. The apostles affirm the truth of a bodily resurrection by their willingness to suffer because they knew that this was their hope. They were confident that this is what waited for them. So, their practice affirms the bodily resurrection. The suffering of the apostles, the sacrifice they endured, affirms the bodily resurrection. So did Paul endure this for human reasons? To be able to say, look at me. Look how strong I am. Look how committed I am. You should be embarrassed that you don't do as much as I do. Is that Paul's purpose in doing this? Did he suffer just for the admiration of others? And if he did so, what benefit would there be to him in the end? Absolutely none. He did this because he knew there was a future bodily resurrection and he was willing to die in service of the gospel because of it. Paul goes on to say in verse 32b, If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we may die. This was a common philosophy in ancient religions. It's a common philosophy in the great U.S. of A. today. Those who don't believe in an afterlife, those who don't believe in the God that you and I believe in, they believe they've got to get all you can while you can. You've got to live life to the fullest. Why? Because tomorrow you're going to die and that's just the end. Did you know that this is a direct quote from Isaiah 22.13, this was the lifestyle of the Israelites that brought about the discipline of the Lord. They had forgotten who God was. They lived a life of sin. And the prophet Isaiah said, eat, drink, and eat, live and drink, because tomorrow you may die. And this is exactly what is going on in the life of the Corinthian church. If this is all there is, why should we not pursue all the pleasure the world has to offer? It's a license for hedonism if there is no bodily resurrection. Because if there is no bodily resurrection, death ends it all. Now Paul takes the extreme service of the apostles and of a few others and brings it home to the average believer. Paul moves from what he and the other apostles are doing to what every Christian should be doing, and that's letter C, faithful living. Now I'll be very, very honest with you. I am glad that God has not called me to suffer for the gospel the way that Paul did. Now, called Paul, excuse me, God called me to pastor and to be in full-time ministry, and that's brought some difficulties and some hardship and some suffering, but nothing to the extreme of what Paul has gone through. And so some of us would say, well, i got to pass on that one. Well, not so fast, because this is the expectation for every believer. Beginning in verse 33, do not be deceived, bad company corrupts good morals. You've heard that verse before, haven't you? I'm sure you've said that to other people before. Throughout all of this letter, Paul has been correcting faulty beliefs which have led to sinful behavior in the life of the church of the Corinthians, the factions and the fighting, the immorality, the abuse of the Lord's Supper, the insistence of personal Christian liberty over the well-being of other people, lawsuits, and on and on and on it has gone. Paul is continually correcting faulty belief because faulty belief will end up in in sinful behavior. And so Paul gives a general exhortation that is being 
specifically applied to this topic of not believing in a bodily resurrection. So the Corinthians are associating with and they are listening to the people who do not share the same belief system. And the principle is clear. Bad company corrupts good morals. I want to tell you this. If your closest circle of friends are unbelievers... That's the truth, quote-unquote, you're going to hear. That's the influence that is going to be most significant in your life. And eventually, it will have an impact on what you believe and then on what you actually do. Pagans, or unbelievers, will negatively affect Christians. They will negatively affect their beliefs and practices, and this will corrupt our good morals. Now, some people are offended at the word pagan. Well, wait a minute. I'm not a pagan. I mean, I've had a good job, and I got a college degree, and I've lived a moral life, and I've raised a family, and I've done all. I'm not a pagan. Well, you know, biblically, you are a pagan because you don't believe in Christ. You don't believe in the finished work of the Christ. You have an appropriated faith in who He is and what He's done. And so biblically you are considered a pagan because you're an unbeliever. The closer you and I are to unbelievers, the more of an influence they're going to have over us and the greater potential effect this is going to have upon our beliefs and our lifestyle. Paul personally taught them much of what he is correcting in this letter. So what has happened? What has happened to all the good teaching that came from the great Apostle Paul? Other people have come in and said, you don't have to believe that. That's not right. You shouldn't do that. What's the point? Others have led them away from the truths that he has taught them. Without without the prospect of a resurrection... And the accountability it brings, there's no incentive for doing anything but what we feel like doing here and now. Right? Think about it like this. If if you had a job and you collected a paycheck and there was never any accountability from your employer, what would be the what would be the need to go in and punch the clock and do the work? They're just gonna send you the check, so why should I go in? I mean, no one's saying anything. I guess, I guess no one notices, right? Well, there is accountability. In the end, we will stand before the one who has the name above every name and we will give an account of our life. And he will either say, depart from me, you worker of iniquity, I never knew you. Or he will say, enter into the rest that's been prepared for you. Two choices, two options. If behavior has no reward or no condemnation, then behavior is absolutely uncontrollable. <laughs> Just ask a public teacher. If behavior is not, if behavior has no condemnation or no consequence, it's uncontrollable. The exhortation continues, and the rebuke is very, very clear here in verse 34. Become sober-minded as you ought. This is referencing backwards to good, bad company corrupts good morals and denial of the resurrection and the practice of baptizing for the dead. Be sober-minded as you ought and stop sinning. For some have no knowledge of God. I speak this to your shame. 
Paul says, sober up and stop sinning. The sinning here relates to the denial of the resurrection, probably the practice of a vicarious baptism. And sobering up is what happens after the drunkenness has worn away and what anybody who has ever been drunk would attest to, being drunk affects what I think and what I do. You You got that? Do you agree with that? The lives of countless people have been negatively affected during a state of drunkenness and many have paid an incredibly heavy price. When the drunkenness is worn off and they have sobered up, they say, what have I done? How did I get here? What's going to happen now? Paul says, sober up and stop sinning. I'm sorry. Be sober-minded as you ought, for some have no knowledge of God. I speak this to your shame. He says this to their shame, and he may be speaking to those who believe in a bodily resurrection and aren't reteaching that truth. They are allowing, not challenging the practice of vicarious baptism. It could be a general rebuke to the entire congregation as a whole, but the point is very clear. What is taking place in your church by either allowing a teaching that denies bodily resurrection to continue without being challenged or the vicarious baptism, this is to your shame because some have no knowledge of God. The Corinthian church is filled with unbiblical belief and unbiblical practice and Paul is not going to allow that to continue. And so to remove the central truth of Christianity, the resurrection of the dead, from their midst makes them something other than a church. My friend, I want to tell you, if, if you take sin and hell and redemption and the resurrection out of the teaching of the church, it's no longer a church. It's just not. It's a social club where you get together with people that you like and you have things in common with. And you sing a few songs and you figuratively clunk your glasses together and you say, have a great week, see you next time. What we need to remember is this. There is tremendous power in the resurrection message. It's central to the truth of the gospel and it provides for us incredible hope. Jesus rose from the dead. He is alive and we will also live with Him because one day we will be raised just like He was raised. What greater incentive, what greater motive could there be for living a faithful life, for serving Him and being faithful to Him, then the hope and the confidence of a future resurrection. There is no doubt that one day we will die, we will stand before Him, give an account of our life, and He's going to say, why should I let you into heaven? And you're going to stumble and you're going to stammer and you're going to say, well, um, uh, I, I was a moral guy, I was a moral girl, you know, I was faithful, I blah, 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 I did all these things. The balance of good has outweighed the scale of bad. And he's going to say, wrong answer. Depart from me, I never knew you. 
we're going to stand before Him and we're going to cling only to our faith in the resurrected Christ. And then we're going to give an account for what we've done with that message.